Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Stuart Perrin. Stuart is an American spiritual master of Kundalini Yoga who has been quietly teaching small groups of students around the world for the last 39 years and is a direct disciple of Swami Rudrananda, more commonly known as Rudy. <clears throat> Stuart studied six years with Rudy. In 1973, Rudy died in an airplane crash, and Stuart was one of three survivors. Um, and Stuart wrote this book, which I enjoyed reading, entitled uh, Rudy, The Final Moments. He's also written about ten other books. Um, and what I found interesting about this book is we know from the outset that there's going to be a plane crash and Rudy's going to die, but um, you throughout the so there's no suspense in that sense. But throughout the book, you segue back and forth between the progress of the flight and reminiscences about your life with Rudy and so on. And so this is kind of like there is a suspense because you're wondering how's this plane going to crash <laughs> and uh, and then you're kind of dipping into these deep philosophical considerations at, at the same time so it's a very enjoyable read and, and very well written um, and it, you know the reason I invited you um, although I probably would have invited you eventually anyway but uh, kind of bumped you up in the queue is that my friend Avram I don't know if he goes by that name with you but um, I've known him for quite a while, and he's been a seeker for decades. He's done all kinds of meditation. He's been to India. He's lived in Amaz Ashram. And he always felt completely stuck, felt like he wasn't getting any place. And so he emailed me some months ago and said, wow, I've started studying with this guy, and I'm really making progress. And I thought, holy mackerel, if this guy can get through to Avram, <laughs> he must have something. <laughs> so anyway, thanks. And there's a bit of a long-winded introduction, but... Um, uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. You know, yeah. Share with you whatever I can share, and hopefully it'll help somebody. I think it will. Um, we have a number of similarities, you and I, actually, um, aside from our 1960s indulgences and the legal consequences of that and you know, learning meditation at a fairly early, early age and so on. But I, I actually also had a, a spiritual mentor and friend whom I admired very much who was killed in a small plane crash just like that, a four-seater. In that case, I wasn't in the plane and all four people were killed. Uh, but it was a real shock, you know, and um, a great loss to all, the, all those who loved him. So I thought that was a little bit ironic. <clears throat> Incredible, huh? I didn't yeah. know any. I, I don't know who that is. His name was Joe Clark, and he was a uh, leader in the TM movement. And he was kind of in a small plane checking out some land in North Carolina. And, and like like in your situation, the the pilot was very inexperienced. It was like one of his first flights after his, receiving his training, and he didn't know what he was doing. And he lost control of the plane. It crashed and burned. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, to me, it was uh, quite. Uh, transformative experience, you know, going through that uh, plane crash, coming out of it. And I, I always look, I, you know, when I get up in the morning and shave, I look at myself in the mirror and I say, you know, you're a living miracle steward. Every day of your life, you know, is something that you have to treasure every moment of your life because, you know, who hits a mountain at 125 miles an hour and walks away? Yeah, I was surprised that anybody lived actually or, or even that Rudy died and you lived because you were in the front seat and he was in the back it seems like that would have been a safer position well it, it really wasn't that it was another thing uh, Rudy put his life inside everybody else in the plane they were all his students mm -hmm. and he transferred his soul force into me I was holding his hand the moment the plane hit the mountain mm -hmm. and I felt this staggering energy come from him into me I was knocked unconscious, and when I woke up, you know, I, w I realized that the, the pilot told me that Rudy had died. Mm -hmm. And the incredible thing about it is, and this might sound strange to people, but I never felt he was gone. I still, to this day, don't feel he's gone. Right. I feel he lives in my heart. He has always been in my heart. He was in my heart before I met him. He was in my heart while I studied with him, and he hasn't left till this day. And I looked at him, and I, when I realized he was gone, my first thought was, well, first of all, thank you for taking me with you at this last moment of your life. I couldn't think of a greater blessing, you know, to be offered the opportunity to be there the second that your teacher takes samadhi. And, and I, was, I, I said, now, Stuart, you will find out what you have learned in the last six years. You know, what he taught you, can you apply it to your life, can you transform? it to other people? Can you use it to teach and raise the consciousness of other people? And his 
training was remarkable. I mean, that's basically what my book is about. What it really is about, other than that airplane crash, is how spiritual teachings are passed on from generation to generation. And his training was remarkable. And he always told me, he said, look, you know, you're here to build your connection with God. You know, you're not here to worship me. You're here to learn from me how to do this, how to develop a system inside yourself that is strong enough to connect with this higher force of energy in the universe. And when I go, I don't want you dragging me back here. I want you to have your own unique an extraordinary connection with God and continue your work in the world. And if you continue your work in the world, it will keep me from having to reincarnate and do this nonsense over again. <laughs> so he really trained me in that. He put me through six years of an extraordinarily rigorous training. And it was, and you know, I used to scream and yell and I hated it and I couldn't take it. And I was always there to get more because I realized I had no other choice in life but to learn this. And he also understood something, that the need in myself was so deep to have a spiritual life that he could impart this kind of training with me. And he even told me this all the time. Mm -hmm. He said, look, he said, you know, he said, I know what I'm putting you through, but I also know you're going to survive it because your need to have a spiritual life is strong enough to be able to go through this and get what you need. And I learned going through it that probably the single most difficult thing in the world is, you know, building a connection with God, higher energy, whatever one wants to call it. You know, because you're up against only one person, and that's yourself. On the other side of all of us is spiritual enlightenment. In fact, I would say every human being is spiritually enlightened. The only thing that's missing is consciousness and how to do it and how to develop themselves so they can not only live in the world, but they can be free of the world at exactly the same time. Yeah, when, when you say that we're all spiritually enlightened, I presume what you're saying is that we all have that innate wisdom or, or you know, radiance within us. It's just a matter of connecting to it. It's like we've all got a billion-dollar bank account, but most of us are walking around paupers. We haven't well, discovered the, the bank key. That was really true. Yeah. We all have brick chakras. Everybody has a chakra system. Everybody has a mind. Everybody has breath. We all have the tools to develop this chakra system. This chakra system is a direct link between us and spiritual enlightenment. Now, the problem is that chakras are like psychic muscles. And if you don't work them and develop them and build inside yourself the foundation, learn to open the heart, learn to get your mind quiet, learn to take all the chaos inside and transform it into harmony and balance... If you don't, you know, if you don't know how to do this, you understand, then uh, you're, you're left with the chaos. You're left with the ego. You're left with, you know, your ideas of what's right and wrong, opinions, and you're left with all of that confusion which keeps you from ever allowing the wisdom of the universe to come into you and nurture you as a human being. Yeah. So, I mean, I wrote down a note when I was reading your book, and I don't remember whether this was something you said in your book or something that kind of inspired in me, but you, you were talking about spiritual maturity, and you, you spoke of working for years to fine-tune my instrument. There's always work to be done. Mm -hmm. And um, so I guess you would agree, and you pretty much just said, that our nervous system is like an instrument, which is the... the it's, it's like if you, see a, if you use a telescope to see a distant star, you use this instrument of the nervous system to find God. It's, that's its function. But one has to know how to do it. That's, you see, the problem in life with most people is that they don't have any training. Right. Understand? <clears throat> you know, people say, yes, I want a spiritual life. Well, I broke it down to five fundamental elements. First thing is... You need to have a spiritual life. You have to have the need to do it. The desire. The need is really the engine that runs the whole thing. Right. Because once you tap that need to have a spiritual life in yourself, you'll do whatever is required. Whatever well, you, you might do. say everybody has the need, but not everybody recognizes the need. Well, exactly. You know, not everybody has the desire, or at least not explicitly. Or not everybody can confront that need, because that need will force you to do... I mean, it's like... It, for instance, it's the story of Millarepa and Malpa. You know that story? Sure, where he's Incredible like story. building the house and tearing it down. Yeah, and Thirteen houses. I mean, yeah. his need to get a spiritual life was so strong 
that he would build and tear down 13 houses before and, and when it was finished what could have been left of his ego became right. the poet saint of tibet well in the modern world there are other ways of doing this but that need has to be real mm-hmm. if it's not real in somebody and they haven't tapped it and are willing to follow that need then there is always an excuse why they're not going to do it I'm this, I'm that, I got a party, a date, a this, a that, I got a blah, blah, blah. You know, my uncle, my aunt, my grandfather, my, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know? The, the Yoga Sutras have this thing about, you know, yogis can be classified as mild, medium, and intense. And I th- then I think within each of those three categories, there's further categories until you have the, the most vehement intense. And, and Patanjali correlates that with the, the, the speed with which one is going to become enlightened, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, even in the Bible, you know, I'm not a, you know, biblical scholar, but Christ said, let the dead follow the dead, follow me to life. It was extraordinary. When I first read that, it almost knocked me off my chair. Mm. I said, how can he say something like that? And then you discover as you start doing spiritual practice, it's really true. Let, you know, why mingle with this lack of consciousness in the world if you can follow somebody that can guide you to your spiritual enlightenment? Well, if the need is real in somebody, they will follow that person. You know, and the second element to this is the will to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, having the will to truly use the tools that we're born with. You know, and, you know, we have a will to make money, to get in relationships, to accumulate untold objects and this and that in our life. Yet, you know, success and all this stuff that this will is poured into, but the will to have a spiritual life means that we have to learn how to use the object, the, the, the things we're born with, you know, in order to develop the chemistry inside ourselves that will give us a spiritual life. So to tra- take that external will and begin to internalize it, this is literally transforming things where we have to change from the day we were born. Because everything in life is out there. Well, we have to make success, this, that, everything is out there. Very few people talk about the inner and using the will. And, of course, you know, once you start using the will that way, then you have the tools that you can use, and they become clear. One of them is gratitude. Understand? Because gratitude is the fastest way to open the heart. And if the heart is closed in a human being, I don't care how much knowledge you have of the great cosmos and the arcane, and, you know, it's nonsense, you know? I mean, you know, you have to learn to live in the now, in the present, in the moment, and nobody's going to live in the moment if their heart is closed. So we got to learn. So gratitude, simple gratitude is the fastest way to learn to open the heart. In the heart is joy, love, you know, happiness, the highest language of God on the earth. But we have to get in there. And we not only have to get in there, we have to sustain it. So it can't be done every three months or every six months. But it's a continuous openness that goes on day after day after day after day. How then, do you, oh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Then you have the other tools, which are the mind and the breath. Mm-hmm. You know, the mind is the strongest instrument we have. It's also making everybody crazy. <laughs> it's a voice that never shuts up. It has all the answers and none of the answers. It gets us into every kind of conceivable trouble that the universe can provide for us, you know, and we are drained by this energy. You know, somebody who spends eight hours just thinking will be more drained of energy than somebody that spends eight hours digging a ditch. The mind eats us alive. We have no power to use the mind consciously. So... Part of meditation practice is learning to use the mind. It becomes a surgical instrument that you can use inside yourself to open the very foundation of your being. And the second element, the second tool we're born with is breath. Breath is life. Every time we inhale, we take in life. Every time we exhale, we let go of a part of ourselves. So the, you know, even the Hindus have a mantra called so hum. You know, you inhale, it's so, I am. Hum is that. I am one with the universe. So every time people are praying 24 hours a day and they don't even know it. It's every inhalation. And then when you learn to use the mind to build 
the center of balance in yourself, and you learn to use the breath to strengthen the chakra system, you are bringing life into the chakra system and using the breath, which is life, the I am, which is life, to open, expand, and develop the heart center, the foundation center, get the mind quiet, and get yourself attuned to being consciously connected to this higher force of energy in the universe. And what do we want? Basically, you know, hovering above us, Rick, hovering above us are all the energies of the universe wanting to provide us with wisdom, knowledge. They're just there waiting for us to open. And the only reason we don't receive it is we're not open. But once you use the tools to get yourself open, all of that knowledge, that wisdom comes, you know, and it begins to guide your life instead of the ego, the mind, the, you know, uh, all the stuff guiding your life. This higher energy begins to, and it transforms itself into something extraordinary, which is compassion, mm. which is basically the highest level of Tibetan Buddhist teachings, you know, and I'm not a Tibetan Buddhist. <laughs> But I was given a training in wisdom and compassion by a very great Tibetan Rinpoche, you know, years ago, you know. But anyway, this is what I teach. This is what I teach people when they come. This is why Stephen or Avram, as you know him, you know, he comes and he works on himself and he says, I've never heard this before. He said, I've never, this is, you mean there's a chakra where I can get balance? (laughs) where I can transform my craziness into harmony and found it. I said, yes, even go down there and do it. Learn how to get centered in the, in the chakra right below the navel. Is there, there's a chakra in my heart? If I open that, yeah, gratitude. Will, and you, by building this system, you get strong enough inside to sustain this. So it's not just knowledge of it, but it becomes a living reality. It becomes so much a part of your life. It's like Ram Dass said, be here now. And you can't be here now if your heart is closed. You know, I once wrote in a book years ago that the only successful people on earth are happy people. And I really believe this, you know, because you know, you find a happy person, you find an enlightened person. You know, you find some, and, and to find a happy person is like finding the Holy Grail, you know. I mean, for every 50,000 rich people, you might find one happy person living on the earth, you know. Yeah, and of course, I think you're referring to a fairly superlative degree of happiness because a lot of people would say, "Yeah, I'm a happy person," but you know, you know, that's not what you're talking about. I'm talking about what they call Ananda, that opening right, the bliss, inner bliss. No, it's like it's like Rudy was that way. Mm-hmm. That's why I stayed with him. You know, he was ext- he was like a stick of incense. Yeah, he had so much fire inside him, and yet it came out with this sweetness and his love and his compassion. Mm-hmm. And it, the fire in him transformed all of his tension into the energy of compassion. And he was able to give that to the people that studied with him. And I, I found that that's what it's about, you know? Yeah. So you're obviously a very much of a practice sort of guy, which is fine with me. I mean, I've been doing a practice for decades. And I actually had somebody email me recently and say, why, why do you have such emphasis on practice? You know, I mean, because there's a sort of a, a current in, in contemporary spirituality, which is anti-practice. You know, give up the search. And, you know, if you engage in a practice, you're only going to reinforce the notion that there is a, a person who's doing the practice and so on and so forth. And my answer to her was just that, it's worked for me from day one, you know, very profoundly. And, and, you know, I'm just kind of going with what, what my own experience, you know, I'm not. Doing... Exactly. And you can, I look at it another way. If they want to become a neurosurgeon, right. Mm-hmm. They don't get training. They're very dangerous. Yeah. If they want to become a plumber. They don't get training. They're very dangerous. If they want to become anything, an artist, a musician, you've got to get training. You have to master the craft. The craft of spirituality is mastering the chakra system, mastering the mind, mastering the breath, and learning to use these elements to develop the ch- And until you develop that craft, you understand? Once you develop the craft, the search is over. There's so no more religion. Why, why do you think that so many people these days, and I don't know how aware of it you are, but I'm fairly aware of it because I interview all these people. Why do, why do you think that so many people have this sort of dismissive attitude toward practice? Uh, look, it's easy. <laughs> I don't need it. It's easy. Right. You know, I know. 
a lot of spiritual, I hate to, I don't want to get on your people, but a lot of spiritual teachings are based on a lot of ego. Spiritual ego is probably the worst of it, you know? Mm-hmm. I know. Rick, years ago, I realized I don't know anything. <laughs> I don't know anything. Yeah. Life, Rudy told me years ago, I was living in his ashram in New York, and I was on my way to Texas to teach an ashram that he was running down there. And he said to me, if anybody ever asks you who the guru is, you tell them the guru is life. Hmm. And it took me 20 years to understand that and working on myself, that I am here to learn to get strong enough to allow life to be my guru, all facets of it, the good, the bad, the indifferent, and the ugly. Is here to teach me, but how do you do this unless you have the system inside that's strong enough to do it? Yeah, I think a lot of people just want to take a shortcut. I I interviewed a, a very delightful man uh, about a month ago named Francis Bennett, who was a Trappist monk for decades and had a profound awakening in the monastery and recently came out. But he after the interview, he he became very popular all of a sudden, and he just he sent me an email recently in which he said. Uh, I'm still getting 40 to 50 emails a day from people asking me questions um, and whom I guess maybe had a momentary glimpse into absolute reality or at least a clear conceptual grasp of it and then it fades and disappears. But many of these people cherish a memory of this experience and form conceptual philosophical beliefs around the memory. They then try to convince anyone who will listen that they are fully enlightened. <laughs> and uh, you know, people I've met like that who tell yeah. me about and if, and, if he, and if he questions or challenges them, they become very defensive and try to prove to me that they're more awake than I am and so on and so forth. I, I can't tell you how many people I've, who tell me about their kundalini experiences they had 25 years ago. And you look at them and they're shriveled and their eyes are dull and they can't find, but they t- talk about this great awakening that happened to them 25 years ago. And mm. Awakening, look, awakening is something that has to happen every day every day we all live right at the center of God's creation and the only thing that's missing is consciousness Mm -hmm. and if we don't work on ourselves we are not going to be even conscious of the fact that we do live at the center of God's it's God's playground all that's missing is human consciousness now I didn't know this 20 years ago 30 years ago but through years of training years of working on myself I began to realize I don't need religion I don't need uh, dogma, doctrine. I don't need to chant the name of God 80 billion times. I, Stuart Perrin, am living at the, right in the center of God's creation. And I had the chemistry inside to be able to open to this thing and say, look, it's his playground. It's not mine. I'm a visitor here. So don't mess it up. Love people. Open to people. You know, and when you do this, you begin to realize that life itself is the temple not some church on a corner or a synagogue or a temple. So life itself becomes the temple. And everything that you see every day of your life is teaching you how to get closer and closer to your spiritual enlightenment. You know, it's a booter at the gas pump, you know? I mean, basically, <laughs> we got to gas ourselves up <laughs> with, with energy in order to be conscious of the fact that we as human beings are living here directly at the center of all God's creation. And all that's missing is our consciousness. And if we don't build that consciousness in ourselves, it will always be missing. And I don't care what kind of an image somebody has of themselves and who they think they are and the great words that come out of them and the wisdom. And It's, you know, it's all nonsense unless somebody says, what do I know about life? Teach me. Yeah, I found it amusing that you said uh, on one of the recordings I was listening to that you stop making teachers at a certain point because every time you made a teacher, their egos went bananas, you know, they, and they just became very uh, puffed up and, you know, went to their heads. <laughs> That's true. They gave me more trouble than anybody I ever yeah. studied with me. And some of them went through it and became remarkable. Uh-huh. Like about so, a half so they p- passed through their egotistical phase. I mean, they went yeah. through that thing of how puffed up they were, yeah. this and that, and all. I had a deal with that, you know? And then they became remarkable beings, also today giving life to people. Yeah. So it's worth it, you know? It's a pitfall. I mean, it's a pitfall that happens to teachers both famous and and unknown, you know, where all of a sudden you start getting all this energy and attention and love from people and, you know, you're you're not free of ego and, boy, the ego just gloms onto that. And uh, I'll tell you what solved that to me on day one. Uh Uh-huh. 
Rudy? After I taught my first meditation class in uh -huh. Rudy's ashram, they were all expect he, he made me a teacher at a card game, at a poker uh -huh. game. <laughs> it's really true. Uh -huh. We were playing poker. Class was in 15 minutes. He hit me in the ribs. I picked up my card, hit me in the ribs, and said, well, how would you like to teach the class today? Mm -hmm. I said, Rudy, you always do this to me. So I went and took a shower, and I, and I went down. There were 100 people sitting there waiting for Rudy, and Stewart shows up, right? Mm -hmm. And I sit down on the altar, and I taught the class. And after the class, he came up to me and he said, Stuart, he said, next year at Big Indian, he said, first I'll teach, then you'll teach, then we'll show cartoons. <laughs> What's Big India? Big that India. Was an ashram that he had, was running back oh, in, in the early in, 70s. in Texas or someplace? No, no, it was in Big Indian, New York. Oh, okay. New York, okay. Up in yeah. the Catskill. But he oh. said, then we'll show cartoons. And I realized I could be replaced by Bugs Bunny, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and right. it made me realize, Stuart, don't. Ever for Take a second, yourself too seriously. you are doing this. Right. You are doing this. It's only going to work if you get out of the way. Yeah. 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 Um, that's an interesting point. You, well, this is related anyway. You, you, you often use the word working on yourself. And okay. yet, I also heard you say many times that when you sit down to meditate, the first kind of sentiment you instill in your consciousness is, I am nothing. Um, so there seems to be a little bit of a paradox there. If, if, if one is nothing, then who is working on whom if you're working on yourself? Rick, you never become completely nothing. <laughs> it's so a you'd, slow, you'd, gradual process of learning to use the tools you're born with to develop the capacity to get less and less of you and more and more of spirit. And this goes on the rest of a person's life. And this, to me, is what enlightenment is all about. You spend your life growing every day of your life, and you never take your life for granted and think, I have arrived. As soon as I hear people tell me they're enlightened, I almost always walk in the opposite direction. Yeah. An enlightened person doesn't know they're enlightened. They just live in the world. They live in the world. So do you think Buddha, Buddha didn't know he was enlightened? Shankara didn't know he was enlightened? Know, uh, probably not. <laughs> the Buddha, I probably not. Yeah. Well, actually, if we, if we take a, a moment... Living, he was a living expression of God's energy on the earth. How do yeah. you know you're enlightened? You're a living expression of God's energy. <laughs> also, I mean, if we pick apart that sentence, you know, an enlightened person doesn't know he is enlightened. I mean, if we, if we think about what enlightenment actually is... Uh, what is it? Is is the uh, kind of the awakening to universality, to universal consciousness, and some, somehow the living of that through an individual expression? So one becomes that, you know. So it's not like I, Joe Schmo, am enlightened. That's a that's an absurdity. In, you of course, know, it, it's more like universal consciousness is living through this form. That's right. You become a vehicle for universal consciousness. There's enough nothingness inside you that you can be a vehicle for human universal consciousness to manifest in the, in the world. And then your interactions with other people is based on this universal consciousness instead of things that are in your mind, your emotions, your ideas of what's right or wrong, doctrines and dogma and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah, and some act some saints have actually spoken that way, you know, like Ananda Maima, she just used to refer to herself as this body. But of course that gets a little tedious if you're kind of trying to live in normal society and you start talking that well, way. But, <laughs> but if life is your teacher, then it's never tedious because right. life will be constantly presenting you with opportunities to grow and get closer and closer to God and higher energy and enlightenment and well, by you tedious, know, I just meant the, the sort of the convoluted way of speaking that some people adopt in order to kind of try to reference the, the fact that they're not merely an individual. And they, they sort of use strange grammar and so on, which is unnecessary, I believe. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. You know, I can look in somebody's eyes and I see the twinkle. And if the twinkle is there, it lets me go right into their heart. Uh -huh. And I say, okay, this person has something. I don't care what words come out of their mouth. It's that twinkle in their eye. It allows me to just enter their heart, and then I can feel that, you know, there's there's spirit living inside them. They right. are not imposing ego and doing all this stuff, you know. Which, so I mean, that's the way I look at people, you know. And it's wonderful when you find somebody like that. You look in their eyes, and there's just this. You don't have to say anything. It's just a twinkle there. I mean, Ramana Maharshi had that. He, I, I, I'm telling you, he, I, I saw a picture of him one day in somebody's bedroom. You know, I was staying there. I said, this man is my teacher. 
I want that. And then I went to his ashram in India. Ah. And I went there, and I, I'll never forget walking into that ashram. There were all these European yogis there, all dressed in fashionable, fashionable Hindu clothing. And, and I said, no, I'm not here for this. So I went in the back of the ashram. I walked up Mount Aranachula, whatever it's called. You know, the Arana- Mount- Aranachula, yeah. Aranachula, yeah. And I came to a cave, and it said, Ramana Maharshi meditated for seven years in this cave. And I was at a very real crisis in my life. I said, you know, you know, Stuart, you've been struggling in the world and fighting this battle for so long. Maybe you should go live in a cave. Maybe you should go live in a monastery. And I sat down in that cave, and Ramana Maharshi came. The cave was full of light. And I started doing a really deep meditation. And he told me, he said, your work is in the world. Your work is in the world. You're not... Uh, you know, a mountain cave yogi, you know, you have to be in the world. Right. And I just took that in, I left, and I said, I found what I needed at his ashram there in Tiruvannamalai, and when I left, I took that with me. I understood, the same thing happened, I went to Calcutta once, and I met, and I had, I was in Delhi, and I was also going through a very difficult period of my life then, and I heard a voice say, you got to go to Ramana Maharsh, to uh, Ramakrishna's ashram. you got to go. And Calcutta is the last place in the world I ever wanted to go, ever, at any time. You know? I said, said you got to go. So I was with a few students of mine, and I said, look, I want to go to Calcutta. I have to go to, uh, I forgot the name of it, his, his, his temple there. Uh, and if you want to come... I'll never force you to go to Calcutta. It's really a difficult city to go to. So they said, well, come. We went, and we went to uh, his his temple. And I was sitting and working with him and Sarada Devi. Both of them were, and it was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It transformed my life. They set up a protective shield around me that enabled me to deal with some of the most difficult things I ever had to deal with in my life. And when I left there, I felt like a completely reborn person. Complete, and I sat there and meditated for about two hours in that temple. And I left a completely reborn person. You know, so... You've had I, a lot of experiences like this. I've heard you uh, mention many times, uh, you know, various visions and cosmic bodyguards and ascended masters working on you. And um, I mean, is it really quite vivid and clear visually or, or is it more like a subtle sense that this is what's Absolutely. happening? Ramana Maharshi and they were there. Uh-huh. Sarada Devi, you know, I mean, my life has been a lot of experience. I can tell you the best one of all that I had. Okay. Sure. Okay. Uh, in 1977, I was in, I was in India with a student of mine and we went to uh, Darjeeling and I met some Tibetan lamas. I said, I want to meet every Rinpoche in town. <laughs> so I told them. So they took us from temple to temple, Goom and this place and that. You know, and we met all these Rinpoches. And I didn't feel a deep connection with most of them, you know. And then they said, let's go to uh, Sanada. So I didn't know where Sanada was, but we went. And there were about 150 monks sitting in the courtyard there with their robes on and prayer wheels and yapa beads and Omani Padmi Uming it and the whole thing. So I said to one of them, who seemed to be like he was a little bit more important position, can we see the Rinpoche? And they said, no, Rinpoche is very sick. He's not seeing anybody. So I said to them, well, go ask him. I said, go ask him. Maybe he will see it. I, at that time, I was living in Texas. You know, I was, uh, and I said, look, we've come from Texas. You know, it's a long way, 9,000 miles. Maybe he'll see us. So he went in, he came out with this really surprised expression on his face. He said, Rinpoche will see you. So we went into his chambers. I brought these white katas, the scarves, and I gave him one, and we gave him two of them, for one, one for my student. And, and I said, Rinpoche, I don't want to disturb you. I know you're not feeling well. But if you could just, for a short while, just talk about Tibetan Buddhism, anything. He went on for an hour mm-hmm. talking about Tibetan Buddhism. When he finished, I asked him, I said, Rinpoche, can we come back tomorrow? 
I said, yeah. So we left. We came back the next day. Rinpoche was now in his teaching, sitting on the, in his robe, sitting on his bed. The day before he was lying there, he, I thought he had two weeks to live, this man. It was staggering, you know. I said, Rinpoche, can you talk about Tibetan Buddhism? He said, yes. So we went on for an hour, talked about Tibetan Buddhism. And I said, Rinpoche, can we come back again tomorrow? He said, please. And this was all done through a translator. So on the way out of this monastery, the student of mine said, Stuart, there's a form of Tibetan Buddhism called Tumo. And it's very similar to the meditation that we practice. It's a very advanced form of yogic Tibetan meditation practice that they teach. It's one of the six disciplines of Naropa, specifically the discipline of Tumo. So I said, I didn't know about this because I don't really ever read those books, you know. So I said to him, okay, now I have some ammunition. We went back the next day. Rinpoche was now sitting in full teaching regalia on a throne chair. We sat down at his feet. And I said, Rinpoche, can you talk about the six disciplines of Naropa, specifically the discipline of Tumo? went on for three hours. This guy was dying two days before. Three <laughs> hours. The translator said, in 13 years of being in this monastery, I have never heard these teachings. He gave, explored the entire realm of the most esoteric Tibetan you know, spiritual teachings that you know, had to be in the monastery 30 years to get this. And I was working and taking all it came in as energy. I don't even remember what he talked about, just as and it serves me every day of my life, even you know, thirty-five years later, you know? Anyway, I, when he finished, he said something to me I that I I won't forget. He said when he was a young Tulku living in Tibet and he wanted to see his Rinpoche, he said he would have to wait hours because there were so many, you know, lamas that wanted spiritual teachings. He said today can't find anyone to teach hmm. I can't find it you know and it turned out to be Kala Rinpoche one of the highest lamas in Tibetan Buddhism I didn't even know who it was until I found out you know while I was there it was Kala Rinpoche an extraordinary being and he said to me I can't find and he was like a cow that needed to be milked Yeah, he needed to be milked and he was dying and I'll tell you the funniest thing about this story you know, uh, he said to me, he, we, about 10 years later, I was giving a lecture at a yoga center in San Francisco. One of my students came up to me and said, you got to hear this. This is incredible. So I went over to this guy who had come to the lecture, and he said to me, he was a student of Kala Rinpoche. And in 1977 or 70, it was like that, 76, 7, like that, he said, Kala Rinpoche was dying. And these two seekers came from the West and their spiritual need was so strong that it brought him back to life again. Hmm. I mean, it, was crazy. it became a legend in their monastery, this hmm. meeting. Cool. So I, what I'm saying is, if, see, it gets back to this thing in you. If your need is real, a person's need is real, the universe conspires. Yeah. They send you Kala Rinpoche. They send you, you know, uh, Ramana Maharshi. They send you you know, Nichananda, they send you Rudy. When I met Rudy, I was almost ready to kill myself. You know? I mean, it was an incredible story how I met him. And I almost read it. It's in my book, you know? I, I was almost ready to kill myself. And I walked into a story. They sent you. The universe sends you. But the need in a person has to be so real and deep that the universe can send Kala Rinpoche. They can send... Nichananda, they can send Ramana Maharshi, they can send Sarada Devi, you know, Ramakrishna, they can send you teach and then they send you teachers every day. It could be somebody, you know, walking down the street who has something important to give you. And it could be they hold the door for you or this and something major to give for that you need for your spiritual life. Yeah. There's that saying, when the student is ready, the master appears, and, and there's, a, there's a deeper mechanics to that, I think, in terms of just, just what you're saying. I mean, there's this intelligence in the universe that orchestrates everything, and, and even the advent of great, well, like you mentioned, a number of them, but great avatars and so on who have come to earth, they, they come because there's a need, you know, there's a demand, so to speak, and they're just, I, I'm 
acting in accordance with that, um, you know, w with that summons, I could say. <laughs> our, and our world is an incredible need. Yeah, very much it's so. It's a need that emanates out of total confusion and chaos and people just bouncing around, not knowing. They're like ping pong balls bouncing off the walls. You know, they don't know exactly what to do. Yeah. And yet, you know, they say in the Bhagavad Gita, many are called and few are chosen. Right. You know, and you tell them what to do. Oh, yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Off to, off to the next seminar, you know. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know there, there is a there are there is a plethora of teachers these days. There's um, and that's kind of unprecedented. There, and there may be different, you know, degrees of quality and wisdom and, and enlightenment in, in all these teachers. But somehow there seems to be a, a it seems to be appropriate because it's happening that um, there's there are just so many teachers all over the place each with their own coterie of students. And, and you know, I have no problems with that. Everybody yeah, me neither. I mean, it's like different exactly strokes for different folks, you know? That's right. Everybody's attracted to exactly where they have to be. And I yeah. have no problems with that, you know? And if, you know, and if a teacher isn't an ultimate teacher, and few are, if any, uh, then, you know, a person might move on after a few years. Exactly. And, uh, but that, you know, just because first grade or second grade isn't all there is to learn in education doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. They are stepping stones to third and fourth grade. <laughs> and I agree with this, you know. I yeah. absolutely agree 100% with that. I am not the ultimate for everybody. I don't know, I mean, I don't know if anybody is the ultimate for anybody. You know, it's, Right. It's like, I mean, obviously some people stay with a teacher all their lives and they're completely devoted to them and, that, and that's fine, but... Uh, if anyone claims that such and such a teacher is the best teacher in the world and is offering the ultimate teaching and all, I'm just a little suspicious. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you I know, because it's very much an individual consideration of what's appropriate for each person. Like, for instance, you know, Avram, our friend Avram. Amma is an incredible being and, and is impacting the lives of millions of people. Mm -hmm. Off the charts, awesome. But, you know, Avram needed to be with you to get some, some practical teaching that would actually help him in a way that apparently Amma wasn't able to. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, he, you know, and he'll probably move on someday from me to somebody else, which is just all right, you know? It's just yeah. Trying, you know, I... As long as the person doesn't become a dilettante, you know, and just kind of keep hopping all over the place without taking anything seriously. Well, that's true. That's yeah. the worst. Yeah. To me, there's two things in life, you know, that really never work. One is promiscuity, and the other one is purity. <laughs> and they really are the same energy, you know, in a different form, and they don't, yeah. you know. Uh, either side of the same, different poles on the same magnet or something. <laughs> Interesting. <coughs> um, let's see. What next? Uh, at a certain point, you were talking on your tapes of, uh, you know, know thyself, and, and you said, well, that's garbage, but... I think what you what what was originally meant by that um, phrase is not the self that's infinitely complex and and you know messed up and complicated that will never sort it all out, but really the deeper, higher self. That's the that's the self that that, that we're being admonished to know in that mm -hmm. fam famous phrase. Wouldn't you agree to that? Yeah, of course. I, I mean, mean, we I, we can go on kind of sorting through the details of our lives, infinite you know ad infinitum, but. That's, that's, we'll never get to know ourselves that way. But you know, but you, look, I don't know what I know. You understand? I know that if I open inside, the universe provides me with, an, with, with wisdom. Yeah. You know, and I don't know how that wisdom is going to come to me on any given day. Right. You understand? So I think it's more have the security in yourself, the balance in yourself. You know, the openness inside to allow the universe, wisdom, life to teach you. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to know yourself. It's really opening to receive the teachings of life. And every day you're a different being. It's a different energy that comes that teaches you. And you have the security not to have to conceptualize it and put it in little boxes and make it this way or that way. But you learn from what the universe has to teach. So I think if that's what know thyself is, then I'm all for it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, on the one hand, sure, every day we're a different being, but wouldn't you agree that ultimately what spirituality is all about is discovering that 
being with a capital B, which is never different, you know, which is kind of the, the, the rock-solid foundation of it all and the essence of each of us? Yes, I agree. Yeah. That's transcendental, that, and that encompasses everything. You know, I agree. Yeah. I had this guy I interviewed a couple months ago who said, uh, there, is, there isn't an inch of daylight between me and Ramana Maharshi, and I was trying to figure out what in the heck he was talking about. Because, in, you know, from my perspective, there was quite a bit of daylight. But, you know, if he's speaking of the absolute self, then sure. But you could say the same thing of a mosquito. You know, there's no, there isn't an inch of daylight between the soul of a mosquito and, and that which Ramana Maharshi is, essentially. But the whole game, really, is to learn to embody that wisdom, not just to sort of realize it in the abstract, but you to know, manifest Rudy, it. Rudy taught that. You absorb the teachings of your guru so that you can have your own independent connection with spirit. The, the work of a disciple is to free the teacher. Now, if there's not an inch of room between one and Ramana Maharshi, you're keeping Ramana Maharshi locked in the world. You know? And it's also, I think, almost delusional. Hmm. You know, we have to be able to receive the teachings of, a, a, of our guru so that we can then have our connection with God and then the guru will leave and then that teaching is transmitted from generation to generation that way yeah. so Rudy always told me look you can be a, you, know, you, you can be a fifth rate Rudy or you can be a first rate steward <laughs> just good. get the teachings <laughs> you know, learn how to get your teachings learn how to open and have your independent connection with spirit then the universe will guide you to do the best that you can possibly do in this world in service to higher energy in the universe. Mm. That's what he taught me. And he said, don't, don't be me. He said, look, when I, when I leave here, don't, don't cry. Don't, don't wish me to come back. Just do your work. Do your inner work. Build your connection with God. And I know, I, you know he told me he was going to live to 84 years old. Yeah. And Which I calculated would have been right about now, I think. Yeah, he died yeah. at 45 years old, you know, yeah. and nobody expected it. Everybody assumed that Rudy was going to be around forever. Mm. But he always told me, because I spent a lot of time with him, you know, he said, do your work, Stuart. Get yeah. your t- training. Get your training. He said, I'm not going to be here forever. Get your training. So Rudy was actually a disciple of, originally a disciple of Nityananda, wasn't he? Who was who was Muktananda's guru? He, so Rudy somehow went to India and discovered Nityananda way back what, before Muktananda even made him famous, I presume. Yeah. Huh. And Rudy brought um, Muktananda to the United States. Rudy brought Muktananda to the United States. Oh, he okay. was the reason Muktananda ever came to the United States. Huh. Our uh, ashram on, in New York put together all the funds, everything, and we brought Muktananda and his entire coterie mm. to the United States. Wow. So Rudy already, by that time, had become, I guess Nityananda had died, and, Mukta, and Rudy had become a disciple of Muktananda, right? Rudy met Nityananda once. Oh, is that? Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. He was on his way to New Zealand. Rudy was? To study something called Pak Sabud. Huh. And... When he came to India, a friend has said, on his way to, he went through India. And he had given up his business. He had given up everything in America because of some, some psychic that told him something that would happen to him if he stayed here, you know? And he was on his way to New Zealand to do Pak Sabud. And he, when he was in India, he was in Bombay. And so one of his friends said, you got to meet this teacher, this guru who lives in Ganesh Puri. You have to meet him. And Rudy said to him, okay. So he went out there and he said when he was within a mile of Nichinanda's ashram, all of the tension, all of the craziness, everything disappeared. Hmm. And as he got closer and closer, all the answers came to him about not going to New Zealand, about going back to the same thing that happened to me with Ramana Maharshi, you know, right, right. going back to, to America, you know, and doing and continuing your work and building what you're doing there. So he met Nichinanda, and Nichinanda became his root guru, because Nichinanda basically saved his life. You know, transformed all of that stuff into life-giving energy in him. Just in one meeting. One, one meeting, and then he went back again, and uh, Nichinanda had taken his samadhi. Uh-huh. He had passed on. 
Right. So then he became a disciple of Muktananda. Mm -hmm. You know, and he spent 13 years studying with Muktananda. I once went to uh, Muktananda's ashram in New York in, I think, 1976, and um, they had a, a little program and chanting and, and meditation, and, I, and the atmosphere there was so profound, I went into such a deep meditation that they actually had to kind of jar me and, and get me to move later on because everyone was starting to move around the room, and I was still sitting in the middle of it, <laughs> but it was, it was a very profound influence. Yeah. I met Bhuktananda when he first came here, uh -huh. but uh, he wasn't—he wasn't my root guru. Right. I knew Rudy was. Guru. Yeah, and I, uh, I had that decision when he was here, and I—I and I, I knew that I had to stay with Rudy because he was my root guru. Mm -hmm. Although I had very deep experiences with Muktananda, very right. deep experiences with him. Throughout the book, you never actually mention Muktananda's name. You always just refer to him as Baba. Is, was there a specific reason, like copyright reasons or some such thing that you didn't want to mention Muktananda's name? I just didn't want to get involved. I, I just wanted to keep it as subtle as I could. Okay. Know? I knew who you were talking about because I kind of knew the that, story. But... Rudy, there, there was a, that was not an easy relationship, Rudy's relationship with Muktananda. Huh. I can't go into that. You know, Rudy's not here. He could go into that. Yeah, oh, I want to ask you questions about it if you can't go into it. But, yeah, but it was well, a, I mean, was it difficult in the same sense that your relationship with Rudy was difficult because Rudy was really putting you through the ringer? Yeah, but Rudy did it with compassion, with love. With he did it. Uh, and I, I, again, I can't talk about it. It's All just, right, uh, I won't. Discuss. I won't press you on that count. Uh, you did mention in the book at one point that Muktananda had asked Rudy to be celibate. Um, yeah. Which, of course, implies that Rudy hadn't been celibate before Muktananda asked him. And um, I have a question about this. I, I had, I've heard these bits and snippets about Rudy over the years. I never really knew much about him until I read your book. But way back, I heard that he was friends with Adi Da, who was a, a brother-disciple of Muktananda. And Adi Da was notorious for his sexual indulgences um, with women. And... Um, I can't swear on this show because it goes on our local TV station, but I heard some quote that Rudy said, you know, you'll F all the women in the world and I'll F all the men. Um, is there any legitimacy to that or is that just some I nonsense rumor? I yeah. mean, was, was Rudy profligate in his sexual endeavors or was it just a nor normal guy? You know, just normal guy. I mean, he was a normal person. You know? yeah. I don't know. I, I don't want to get into Rudy's sexuality. That's not my reason to be here. You know? Okay. Uh, we can. Yeah, we don't have to get in. I'm just kind of asking you questions. And if you I don't want, want to get into Adi Da's sexuality, Rudy's sexuality. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into my sexuality. I don't want to get into any of that. Well, how about not anybody's sexuality, but the issue of sexuality in general? I mean, you know, if... If I mean, it comes up in many different spiritual genres. Many different teachers and masters advocate it. Um, do you feel, uh, since we're on the topic, that there's uh, any significance to it? I mean, you know, a lot of, for instance, you talk about raising Kundalini and, and yeah, bring, bringing the energy up and so on. Yes, I think uh, when you learn how to use your sexual energy consciously, uh -huh. you become a master of tantra. Uh -huh. You can become a master of tantra and never have sex with anybody. And you can become a master of Tantra through the intercourse with somebody who also has that level inside them. Because the whole purpose of sexual energy is to transform the human to the spiritual. That's what Tantra is all about. Mm -hmm. Transforming the human to the spiritual and activating Kundalini. All of that takes place in the sexual area. It's like in Hinduism where you have the lingam, you have the, the, the bull, lingam and the yoni and the cobra. Mm -hmm. The bull is the energy of the third chakra. The chakra below the navel, you know? The lingam and the yoni is the, the marriage of that male-female principle that takes place when energy moves through the sexuality. And that will activate kundalini, which is the cobra. So sexual energy is very, very important in the development of a spiritual life. If it's repressed, if it's, you know, people have, can't touch it, can't, they have to learn how to do this and to open it, not mean that they become profligate or promiscuous, but it means that they just learn how to master that energy. Mm -hmm. And if you begin to master that energy, you will never treat anybody cheaply. Right. You will never use people for sexual purposes. You know, you won't do it, you know, because you understand the power of that energy, you respect it, and it's, it's regal, it's noble energy, and, it need, and it's essential 
if you want to transform all, if you'll pardon my, all your, all, all your crap mm -hmm. into a spirit, you have to become a master of Tantra. And that's why when you ever see this Tantric stuff, these paintings, and it's always gods and goddesses coupling and the miniatures, you know, and it's because that, that transformation takes place in the sexual area. Now, you can do it, as I say, through meditation. You can also do it through a very high-level relationship with another human being. You're not going to do it if you use people promiscuously. So what do you teach regarding all this? I mean, in, in, as a practice, do, are you... Are I you... tell people, if you have a healthy sex life, use it to develop the tantra in yourself. Mm -hmm. I tell people this, point blank. And if you don't have that, then use your meditation or use both. If you have it, and use your meditation to do this. And do you teach them actually how to use it? No. No, you just say no. it's a good idea to do, but I'm not the one to teach you that. It's a good idea to learn how to master this, you know? Right. But I'm not going to go in, the, in somebody's bedroom and say, hey, you know, do this and do that. Yeah, what a nonsense, nonsense you know? Yeah. It's not my business, you know? It's not. <laughs> Instead, huh. I tell them you have to learn to master this energy. Right. And, and they never hear this from anybody. You know, and you know, I don't get any cheap thrills telling people to do this. It's just part of the evolution of consciousness. <clears throat> so you don't tell them to mass, teach them how to master it in terms of an actual sexual relationship, <laughs> but in terms of a meditative practice and raising the well, energy up from through the chakras do, and all that stuff. That I do teach. Right. There's a particular technique in meditation that will do this. Involving yeah. the attention, breathing, stuff like that. Using the mind, using the breath. You know, knowing how to draw energy through the sexual area, mm -hmm. bringing it to the base of the spine, activating kundalini, very important. And then sublimating it and having it rise upward, is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we do hear references to that a lot in spiritual literature and teachers and so on. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Um, so, what are we doing here? Um, you used the term spiritual cannibalism at one point. Uh, oh, Rudy used that term. <laughs> oh, what did he mean by that? Well, I don't know, really. I think it, as far as I can tell, what he meant by that was your capacity to allow life to be your teacher, to consume the energy of life, let ah. it teach you, let it open you. And he always said to me, Stuart, I'm going to eat from every... It, life is this big smorgasbord. Mm -hmm. I want to eat from every dish on the table. I don't want there to be anything to have to come back here for. Uh -huh. But you can't eat from every dish on the table unless you eat consciously. Right. Understand? So to him, it was a big smorgasbord. I think his idea of cannibalism was that, uh -huh. that you consume, you know? And people, you know, it's a funny thing, Rick. People in this world consume each other. Most relationships are about people consuming each other. They live off of each other's energies. Mm. Now, the whole point of doing meditation is you can connect with a higher source of energy, and you live off of that energy, and then you don't have to live off of somebody else's energy. Right. So in his very wonderful and totally askew way, he saw that as a kind of cannibalism. We're living off of the universal energy. You know, the energy of God, spirit, whatever you want to call it, higher energy. Yeah, you become an energy radiator rather than an energy sucker. Yeah. Well, most people, how do they live? Why do most relationships fail? Yeah, because most people are deficient in their energy, and so they're, they're trying to take rather than give. That's right. They just keep consuming one another, you know, mm -hmm. until finally, ah, I can't take it anymore. Yeah. You know? there's, that, there's that phrase in the Bible, my cup runneth over, you know, and the, the implication is that you're so full that you're overflowing rather than being a, a sort of a, a net drag on the, on the energy of, around, of your environment. You're, you're a, a net plus, a, 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 you know, exactly. a, contrib a contributor. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, interestingly, in this, this term, what you were referring to about Rudy and the smorgasbord, there's this term uh, in the Vedas someplace, Brahman is the eater of everything. And um, what that means to me is that Brahman, the wholeness, totality, completely engulfs and contains all the diversity, contains everything. We're all consumed by Brahman. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, everybody dies, everybody leaves here. We're all consumed by this energy. It's extraordinary, you know? Extraordinary yeah. vision of the universe. 
And when you see that you're being consumed by infinite energy in the universe, there's no more fear of dying. There's no more fear of stepping into the unknown. You embrace it. You are that which cannot die. <clears throat> well, <laughs> I mean, don't you have that sense? Some, yeah, often. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, there's some changes keep happening. The body gets older. The body is sick. The body is well. You know, this and that. But there's something which just doesn't change, regardless of all that. That's right. Yeah. Something doesn't change, and that's Brahman consuming everything, mm-hmm. the universe. I heard you mention, I heard you quote the Buddha a number of times as having said that suffering is the fastest way to evolve. And uh, maybe it's because you're Jewish, you know. (laughs) I don't think so. I've never met anyone on this planet that doesn't suffer. Yeah. And it just, you know, know, look, all right, two things, okay? Mm -hmm. I remember once Rudy said, you suffer like a schmuck or you suffer consciously. One way or another, you're going to suffer. So either you do it consciously or you do it like a schmuck. Second thing is, I used to have a. I used to be in the Oriental art business years for years. I did that 25 years of my life, maybe more. Mm-hmm. And I had a painting by a very famous 19th-century Zen monk, whose name I can't remember today. Anyway, but this is a long time ago, and it was a long scroll, and it was a staff on the scroll, mm-hmm. and it said there was there was calligraphy on both sides of the staff. It said, "Those who are on the path get hit with this staff." And those who are not on the path get hit with this staff. And it just made a lot of good common sense to me that if you're going to get beaten up by life, you might as well learn how to do it consciously and use it, you know, learn how to transform your suffering into a spiritual life. And I think that really is an incredible thing because everybody suffers. I've never met anyone who doesn't suffer on this planet. But how many people know how to take that suffering and bring it into the chakra below the navel and transform it into harmony and balance. How many people know how to do that? Almost nobody. And suddenly you begin to realize that you can take the things that are killing you and they become life-giving energies if you know how to do it. Yeah. I would have to say, in terms of my own experience, that the more I've developed spiritually over the years, though, the less I suffer. You know, it's like because I used to be, you know, much more kind of going against the current of, you know, crashing into the rocks and so on. And now I've learned much more how to flow with the current and not, you know, not create chaos in my life so much. But, you know, there's always rocks and boulders in that current. There's always going to be something. Sure. Something that's going to come along. I stubbed my toe this morning on a a bench and, (laughs) you know, it hurt. There's always something that comes along that's going to make you, (laughs) Yeah. and instead of, well, okay, I can use that. And also, another thing, Rick, people usually, when they suffer, they, they run to churches, they run to temples, they run to synagogues, they pray, they, they somehow, somehow are reminded that they have to get to God. Yes. Well, that's an interesting point, because, you know, if that's true, that, that suffering is an impetus to seek God then by the same token, perhaps uh, uh, the more one finds God, the less one needs that goad, you know, and so you begin to just really enjoy and experience bliss and not so much suffering. You're you're rewarded for your efforts, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. You know, you become lighter inside. You become less, you know, caught up in all the dramas of the world. Less overshadowed, less kind of burdened, you know, by a the density of it all, you kind of have established something that isn't it touched becomes, by all that. It becomes what I said before, God's playground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can enjoy it. Right. You have to enjoy it. And we meet people who are, you know, we consider to be, you know, spiritual supermen, or so to speak, and they're very joyous people, you know. They, they don't appear to be all full of worries and troubles and, you know, all, and, and even though they might be taking on a huge load of responsibility and all, they do so in a very carefree, joyous, childlike way. Well, there's a twinkle in their eye. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, I, th- I think we could, you want to cut it here or you want to continue? If you wish, I mean, I have a couple more questions, but uh, uh, you, do you need to go? Yeah, I have to you know, do a few uh, things. Okay, so I'll let you go. An hour and something, you know. Oh yeah, this is uh, this is about as long as they, sometimes I go over two hours. But this, if you'd like to leave, I, I, we've pretty much covered all the points. Um, 
Thank uh, you for doing this, Rick. I really appreciate it. You know, I enjoyed, oh, you're welcome. Sure. Enjoyed meeting you this way. You know, it's an yeah. interesting way to meet somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I always enjoy it. Every week, I get to have a conversation with some some new fascinating person and read their book or listen to their thing. Yeah. Get, it's great. I think it would have driven me crazy 30 years ago just to jumping around to so many different people. But these days, it's kind of like I can kind of tune into everybody's trip without confusing myself. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It's a very good service you're doing. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Let me just make a couple of quick concluding remarks. Um, I've been talking with Stuart Perrin. Um, and a spiritual teacher. He's primarily based on the East Coast, but he gets around. Um, pardon? In New York. Yeah, New York. And um, I'll be linking to your website, so if people want to get in touch and see what you're all about and what kind of classes or courses or whatever you offer, they'll be able to uh, find that on your site. Um, those who may have been listening to this interview, may, who, for whom this may be the first interview they've listened to on this series, there are about 140 of them now, and I do a new one each week. So if you'd like to listen to more, go to batgap.com, and you'll see them all listed. You can sign up for an email to be notified when each new one comes up. And uh, if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can also subscribe to the YouTube channel. There is a podcast, in case you prefer to listen to things in uh, audio. I've been listening to your podcast, Stuart. Very nice. Um, and... Uh, there's also a discussion group that crops up around each interview, so people get engaged in talking about the things that have been discussed in the interview. So that's there on batgap.com. You'll see a place to enter comments and participate in the discussion. So that's about it. Um, still a little bit up in the air in, in terms of who next week's guest is going to be. There's some uncertainty, but uh, we'll just see who it is when it happens. <laughs> so thank you, Stuart. And, oh, thank uh, you, Rick. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Take care. Good.